0: Paul Tripp say this last week that one of the main reasons we come to church every week on Sunday morning is to re- cure ourselves of our spiritual amnesia, and that is that between Sunday to Sunday, we forget. We forget. Maybe we don't actually forget, but functionally, we forget who God is and what He has done for us, and so we need to be reminded of that. That's why we're here this morning to remind ourselves of who God is, of His good gifts to us, and to reorient our lives And to untangle our disordered hearts by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Before we get into our sermon this morning, just another quick word on Commitment Sunday next week. Uh, That's a great Sunday to come to church. Don't not come to church because of that. It is a very celebratory thing. And uh, because of that, you should have received a letter this past week. It may still be in your mailbox because we sent it by snail mail, that's right, uh, and you may not check that every day anymore, I don't know, uh, or think there's anything good in there, but uh, we sent it to you. If you did not receive that letter uh, and you did check your mailbox yesterday, uh, then we may not have the most current address for you. Could be our fault, could be yours, it doesn't matter. If you didn't get that letter, we want to make sure that you are on our mailing list. So go to our welcome desk right after service, you can get a copy of the letter. Uh, which tells you about our budget for next year and our goals for next year and the progress that we've been making this year on our goals. Um, so grab a copy of the letter and then give them your most updated address. You can also just call our office during the week and update that or email Carrie Lund on staff, um, but just make sure that we have you. We don't send out a lot of mail, uh, but when we do, it is important. So we want to make sure that we that we have that. So it's hard to believe... But because it is almost Commitment Sunday, it also means that it is almost the holidays. In case you weren't paying attention, it is less than two weeks until Thanksgiving. And Christmas is quickly following, which means it's a perfect time of year for a sermon on gluttony. Amen? I can tell you that I have never preached a sermon on gluttony. I have never heard a sermon on gluttony. How many of you had? I didn't have very many takers in the first service. Maybe just a few. So gluttony of the seven deadly sins is perhaps the most ignored or tolerated, misunderstood or oversimplified. My experience has been we just simply don't talk about gluttony. While I've heard many people who struggle with envy or anger confess their problem and their struggle, I have yet to meet a person who admitted to me that they struggle with gluttony. The way we're going to unpack this this morning, I think that we will see that This is like every other sin. It is not a do I struggle with it or not. It's not a yes or a no, an either or, but it is to what extent is my heart pulled away from God because of this sin. We all struggle with it because the sin of gluttony is not about a number on a scale. It's not about how much you weigh or your body size or shape. We're not trying to keep up with diet culture or contribute to our culture's over obsession with physical appearance and fitness that's not what this is about it's about the heart just as you can be rich or poor or middle class and struggle with greed yes so you can be overweight or underweight or anything in between and still be struggling with gluttony it's not about your body size There there are many reasons why a person may be overweight medication may be contributing you may have a medical condition there are lots of reasons a person could be overweight by the ranges that we've established but not struggle with the sin of gluttony or a person may be very thin and be an absolute glutton so we have to get rid of our stereotypes here of what this is or isn't about while gluttony is related to how we consume food and drink it is much more than that and it can manifest as an excessive desire for experiences so here's my definition for you this morning of gluttony gluttony is a disordered appetite for pleasure a disordered appetite for pleasure a glutton is an overzealous pleasure seeker with no restraint so the english word gluttony comes from the latin and it means to gulp so that's why i put this picture up here on your screen this is a 7-Eleven cup because it's Tulsa and you don't mess with Quick Trip. Everybody loves Quick Trip, so we're not going to go there. Even though they have big drinks too. So we're talking about 7-Eleven here and they introduced the Big Gulp, actually I think before the Big Q, uh, in the mid-70s. And this particular Big Gulp is a 52-ounce thermos or mug to put your coffee or your soda. Or I guess it could have water in it, but probably not. We all know. And apparently in the Big Gulp line, the largest is a full gallon, over a hundred ounces of liquid, okay? Your stomach can only hold an average 32 ounces, just by the way. So the reason that I give you this image is because this word gluttony, it means to gulp. And as we're expanding the definition this morning, it means to gulp down pleasure. And this is how Our world goes around. 95% of marketing is based on convincing you that you need to gulp down the pleasures of life and it will leave you feeling full and satisfied. And the truth is, it won't. It won't. We cannot fill the true desires of our soul by taking in these pleasures. Gluttony is using pleasurable experiences in a way that dulls us from the spiritual and distracts us from God. The glutton worships food and drink to feed their own self-love, and therefore pride is involved as they're all tangled up. Gluttony is defined as the overindulgence or the lack of self-restraint in food, drink, or other pleasurable experiences. Beyond simply the act of consuming, it is a result of simply thinking too much of food or drink or pleasure, simply fixating on that, spending our, all of our time and our energy. We think a lot about food, and food is a good thing, as we'll talk about this morning, but it's not everything. The glutton revolves their life around maximizing pleasure through experiences. And I'm expanding the traditional definition here. It may be food or drink, but we may think about any number of pleasurable experiences that we might use to feel in control of our lives. Could be shopping, right? Could be attending events. Could be spa treatments. It could be whatever. And again, those are things that we can enjoy good gifts from God, but they can become all-consuming, and we can look to them to provide what they cannot give us. So John Mabry says this in The Seven Deadly Sins and Spiritual Transformation. Gluttony is the sin of looking to food or other things to satisfy the cravings of our soul for security, a sense of well-being, comfort, and control over our lives. Gluttony is a hunger for earthly pleasures as a substitute for God himself. So here's a guiding principle. If we are regularly feeding our spiritual hunger for God with proper spiritual nourishment, we are in a better position to enjoy physical pleasures in a way they were meant to be. In community, with gratitude, in moderation. Right? So if we're, if we're fulfilling the true, deepest hunger of our hearts with the spiritual practices, with worship and community and prayer and service and outreach, if we are filling that hunger that we have, which truly is a hunger and a thirst for God and to know Him and to serve Him, if we are filling those things properly, it puts us in a better position. doesn't mean we won't struggle, but in a better position to enjoy the good gifts and not worship them to worship the creator rather than the creation, to worship the giver of the gifts and not the gifts. But if we do the opposite, if we try to use physical pleasures to feed our hunger and thirst for God, we won't be satisfied. It will never be enough. And our gulping will never satisfy the itch and will cause these blessings to become a curse and we'll become enslaved to this elusive pursuit of more and more and more pleasure. We'll become like Sisyphus. Do you remember this from high school English class in Greek mythology? An ancient king who was punished by the gods for cheating death twice. They punished him by forcing him to roll an immense boulder up a hill only for it to roll back down every time it neared the top. And he had to do this for eternity. This is what it's like. To pursue pleasure to feel to to fill that place in our soul it's and here's the weird thing when we enjoy a pleasurable experience there's actually this hit in our brain that tells us that we've accomplished something you may not realize that but when you enjoy a pleasurable experience you think that you have done something you think that you've pushed that boulder to the top of the hill and there's this feeling of accomplishment but it just rolls back down the hill And then it actually takes more effort, and it's harder to get that boulder back up at the hill because your over-desire for that pleasure has caused you to become desensitized to it. So you need more, and you need more extreme versions of that pleasure to satisfy that itch. And it will never be fully satisfying. So this morning, as we look to God's Word to guide our thoughts, our launching point is this proverb. The book of Proverbs is a collection of wisdom sayings. It's attributed to Solomon. Now, he didn't write all of the material in Proverbs, but he wrote some of it, and we could think of Solomon as the sort of general editor of this collection. The most common type of proverb is the short act of speech designed to teach, encourage, correct, or rebuke. They're so impactful because they're a practical way to communicate priceless wisdom that connects with the human experience. So our proverb this morning is part of a collection the 30 sayings of the wise, which spans parts of Proverbs 22 through 24. The aim of these 30 sayings is to ground the character and the social structure of Israel in their covenant relationship with the Lord. So I'll read it again since it's pretty short. Proverbs 23:19. Listen, my son, and be wise and set your heart on the right path. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor. And drowsiness clothes them in rags. So, gluttony and drunkenness are often paired together in Scripture. They're paired to characterize a way of life of overindulgence and lack of discipline and restraint. You may recall that a couple points in the Gospels, Jesus is actually accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, which he wasn't, but they misunderstood his intention and his goals. The prodigal son of Luke 15 is a quintessential example. The parable tells us the the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So the glutton embraces YOLO to the extreme, right? YOLO meaning you only live once. This has become the motto of the modern era. To eat and drink and be merry for we all die. To gulp down the pleasures of life, to get as much for yourself as you can, for tomorrow we die. It's hedonism to the full, and in a way it's nihilism. It's seeing no point in life other than to have fun and pursue pleasure. And this proverb tells us that excessive love of pleasure, that gluttony results in poverty. Now sometimes it results in actual physical poverty, financial poverty. That pursuing those things and a life that is characterized by no discipline can lead to financial ruin. It can, of course, ruin relationships, but financially that can happen. Now, because life's not fair, sometimes people live very gluttonous, very hedonistic lifestyles, and they still have a lot of money because the world's not fair. It doesn't always result in financial poverty, but, but gluttony always results in other kinds of poverty. First of all, poverty of character, which then eventually leads to a spiritual poverty. It has to damage our relationship with God. We cannot look to these other things as our source of comfort, as our source of trust, and also fully place our trust in God. When we're desperately looking for that next hit of pleasure or fun, these creature comforts, We will not look to God for our true joy and gladness. But as we've seen and will see with all of these vices, we must understand that our disordered love is a distortion of an underlying love of a good gift which God has given. And so it is with food and drink and pleasure. So let me be clear. Food is a good gift from God. Amen? Amen. It's a good gift. God has given us good food and good drink. Right here, Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the story. God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And then continuing in Genesis 9, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Amen. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Praise the Lord for bacon, right? You never can go wrong. Being excited about bacon. Everybody, well, if you don't love bacon, whatever. Psalm 104. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts and oil to make their faces shine and bread that sustains their hearts. God has given us food. It's necessary, but it's something that we can enjoy as a good gift From God, And so we should eat food and partake in a way that is appropriate to our health. This isn't one size fits all. There's not some principle or some standard that I can give to you because there are different needs for different people. A very active athlete or a pregnant mama needs more caloric intake than the average person. People have different bodies. They have different lifestyles, different activity levels. And we need the wisdom of doctors, nutritionists, wise friends to help us discern healthy patterns of eating and consuming. I also want to say that the Bible encourages feasting, feasting. You know, I kind of joked that this was a good timing right before Thanksgiving, but here's the thing. Look, God is not some cosmic killjoy, and I'm not here to ruin your Thanksgiving plans. I believe that feasting is a biblical thing, but it is an exception to the norm. In other words, it's not an everyday thing. I think there are times for to put out a big spread and to enjoy a great feast with thanksgiving and intentionality to enjoy God's good gifts, to celebrate things like weddings. I was recently at where we enjoyed a great meal and good drink and we celebrated a big occasion, but you can't do that every day. You have to use restraint. You have to use self-control because then otherwise the good gift becomes a curse because there are consequences to that. I think this is really true. It's a key that ties together all of these sins in that you have to have self-control because if we don't exercise self-control, then we will lose control. If you don't exercise self-control, you will lose control. I'd like to offer some specific words on alcohol. So my personal conviction is that alcohol consumed in moderation is a good gift from God. I recognize that many Christians in different times and different contexts have disagreed on this matter. I'm well aware of the fact that with a church this large, there would be difference of opinion and conviction and practice on this matter, even within our church. And I respect those differences of opinion. Or conviction. It's more than opinion. It would be a conviction. And some Christians may choose not to drink at all. And there's different reasons for that. You don't know a person's heart. It may be because of a family history, because of a negative personal experience. Maybe you just don't want that temptation in your life. You're not sure if you could steward that gift well. Maybe you just don't like it or you don't like how it makes you feel. I would say to the believer who chooses not to drink, don't judge the one who senses freedom and partakes with self control while practicing godliness. To the believer who does choose to drink, don't look down on those who choose not to, thinking that they are legalistic or self righteous. You don't know their heart, you don't know their reasons. I would say that prayerfully consider that this is one of those issues, like a number in the New Testament, where each one must decide in their own heart their conviction knowing that we must all give an account to God for our lives. But I want to add a little exhortation for those of us who choose to drink in moderation. This is an area of Christian freedom where we have to be very cautious, can very easily fall into gluttony and idolatry. We must assess how dependent we are on that evening drink, or two, or three, that we look forward to throughout our day? Is that what is keeping you going? Is that where you're placing your sense of of peace or that that you can make it? I think there's an epidemic of functional alcoholism in our day. Those who may externally appear to have everything together, but you know that there is a problem, that you're drinking too much, and maybe you're still holding on your job and you're still functioning, and people might not ever know it. There are also some who may not, by definition, have an abuse problem, but you know that your heart is a little too attached. I want to suggest to you, pastorally, a possibility to consider. Again, this is not a legalistic burden or a have-to, but I know people who have been helped by this. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's some other pleasure that you know maybe has a little too much pull on your heart. And maybe a great practice for you would be to just decide a short-term fast from that pleasure. Maybe it's a week. Maybe it's 30 days. Because sometimes we don't realize how much something has a hold of us until we break the regular pattern because we just keep going back to it and we keep going back to it. And by taking it away temporarily, it may reveal some things. So here's how the progression unfolds with these pleasure-seeking things. It begins by making the pleasure-seeking too important. We become overly focused on getting that pleasure, on that creature comfort. And then it progresses to where the pleasure-seeking becomes our focus or our goal. It's not just now an enjoyable part of our life, but it becomes our driving force. We're like the man in Luke 12 who says, here's what I'll do, I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger ones, and there I'll store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Pleasure becomes the goal. There are certain parts of the American dream and the way that we have painted it that I think are not entirely biblical. Now listen, don't hear me complaining again about where I live. This is a great place to live wonderful time in history and there are things about some things about the American dream that are that are wonderful things Right jobs for people and ownership and those kind of things But I just want to challenge that there are certain pieces of how we've written up the whole plan and the idea of Retirement that have been overly influenced by our culture and I think one of those is how much emphasis we place on pleasure-seeking Enjoy God's good gifts, but have purpose, have mission. Don't just live your life to live from from one enjoyable thing to the other. Finally, those desires, they become enslaving. Our appetite for pleasure becomes this enslaving force where if we don't get that thing, we become irritable, we become angry. It messes us up because we haven't gotten our creature comfort that we've become dependent on. So here's what we want to avoid. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, the young leader of the church at Ephesus, he includes one of the longer vice lists, maybe the longest one, in the New Testament. And it's a tough list. So here it is. is, Second Timothy 3. He says, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited. And here it is. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. That's what we want to avoid. We want to avoid... Becoming lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We want to love God first and enjoy his gifts of pleasure. Because if we love the pleasures, they won't satisfy. They will, they will become the opposite of what they're supposed to be. They will become enslaving, driving forces in our life. And we will never be able to be satisfied in them. We will be robbed of their power and their goodness. When we become lovers of pleasure. I mean, it's the same thing with money, right? Money is a good thing, but the love of money is the root of all evil. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the Sermon on Greed next week, which is, of course, the topic for Commitment Sunday. But, you know, you're welcome. Listen, I love my creature comforts as much as anyone. But we want to be lovers of of God, who delight in God above all and therefore enjoy the pleasure of His good gifts. We want to worship the giver and not the gifts. So, how do we avoid becoming lovers of pleasure, whose spirits are desensitized to the work of the Holy Spirit because we're so quick to mask or attempt to wash away every sense of discomfort, discouragement, or disorientation in our lives through food or drink or shopping or another mini vacation? Because that's what we do, don't we? Because we have, we have the ability. The moment that we sense discomfort, displeasure, something that we don't like, when we feel disoriented, when we feel out of control, what do we do? We grab for something that will, that will numb the pain or make us feel just a little bit better. But it won't. But we think it'll give us that, it just gives us that little bit. And I wonder what it would look like for us if we embrace the fact that sometimes discomfort might actually be good for us. Sometimes being disoriented or feeling out of control might actually be good for us. And rather than being so quick to grab those things to just try to feel a little bit better, we paused and we said, God, what are you doing here? We said, "You know what, God? What would it look like for me to experience Your power, and Your peace, and Your presence as a truly sustaining force in my life, rather than grabbing for all these little cheap substitutes?" I'm saying this to myself too, y'all. <laughs> what would that look like? I think it would be powerful. I think that we rob ourselves of seeing. God's hand and God's power because we're just we we're so quick to grab whatever thing off the shelf that we're used to grabbing and we all have different things so how do we maintain a healthy relationship with these creature comforts here's a couple of questions for you to consider the first one is does your love of pleasure prevent or restrain your ability to serve and give generously to Christ's work and his church Sometimes that's one of the things. Our love for comfort keeps us from serving, keeps us from stepping out, from doing things that God has called us to do. Sometimes our addiction to our own pleasures keeps us from having more resources available to give generously to all different kinds of God-honoring purposes. What happens when your regular sources of material comfort and pleasure are disrupted? Because it happens. We're pretty good at keeping things under control, but what happens when that is disrupted? What happens in your heart? What happens to your attitude? What happens to your behavior? So I want to offer us a couple of ideas for enjoying God's good gifts. First of all, we do them prayerfully. We have to discern, God, would you help me to have the right relationship with these good gifts? Would you help me, Lord, to not love them too much? Would you show me the ones that maybe I need to remove from my life temporarily or permanently? Because they're not actually that helpful to me. They're not serving your purposes in my life. To be prayerful as we engage God's good gifts. Second, to be thankful recognize that they're all from God, to give thanksgiving for the gifts that he has given, not taking credit for them for ourselves. Third, to enjoy them communally. I think sometimes we get off track and we begin to love things too much because we have become isolated and we're not enjoying those gifts in the context of others, but it's become just this selfish, isolated pursuit of pleasure. I think what we would find is that, that we actually would get more joy and that those things would would produce the good fruit they're supposed to produce if we enjoyed them in the context of others and sharing them with others. We were designed to enjoy God's good gifts in the context of community, with other brothers and sisters in Christ, with our family members, with friends. Fourth, that we would enjoy God's good gifts generously. That's part of how we restrain our own pursuit of pleasure is that we give generously so we have less resources to spend on ourselves. It's just a pragmatic way to approach this. How do we restrain our pursuit of pleasure? We allocate less resources toward it. The only way you can do that is you have to give more away. And finally, that we would enjoy God's good gifts intentionally. Intentionally, Not just gulping down all the good things, but being intentional with those gifts. And part of that, again, might be some kind of fast or some kind of way of you intentionally working through some of these things in your life, just to check your heart, just to see, God, where am I at? And here's a great guiding principle for all of it. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So I know this sounds like a very pious question, but as we, as we partake in God's good gifts, we should ask ourselves the question, is this bringing glory to God? Is this? That's a, that's a very refining question as we partake in God's good gifts. For those of you who find yourself this morning already in trouble and you know it in one of these areas some kind of pleasure that is taking a hold of your heart you have become enslaved to pursuing it to pursuing it and you desire it too much I want to encourage you to reach out to a counselor to a pastor to a trusted friend start somewhere take a step in a direction because you know that thing is not serving you well it has a hold of you It's not a good gift. It's a bad master. You may consider a fast that may be part of your approach so you can see more clearly with it whether it's something you should remove from your life entirely. But there may be pleasures, there may be good gifts that you do need to cut out of your life. Right? Last week we were were talking about lust, but Jesus gives this example where he says if there's something that's causing you to stumble... Get rid of it. Cut your hand off. Gouge your eye out. He was hyperbolically saying, take drastic measures to remove that thing from your life. If it's pulling you away from God, it's not worth it. So there may be things for you that they're just not worth it. That you need to remove from your life. Again, you have to discern that with godly counsel. Here's my heart this morning. Listen, as I said, God is not a cosmic killjoy. God designed joy. He designed pleasure. He wants you to enjoy. Look, one day we're going to sit at an incredible feast. We're going to feast in the kingdom. It's not just a one-time feast. I think that's a symbol. We're going we're to enjoy God's good gifts in heaven. While we're here, our hearts are tainted by sin so we can enjoy his gifts, but we have to be discerning we have to be careful. We have to practice self-control because our sinful hearts will ruin those gifts. So enjoy God's good gifts. But enjoy them as that. So the, the starting point for that is you've got to be feeding yourself spiritually. You've got to be nourishing that desire and hunger for God with the right things. So then you can not let your life be consumed by those pleasures, but you can simply say, God, I'm here today to love you and to serve you and to connect with you. And as we go along the way, I know you're going to give me good gifts and I'm going to enjoy them, but I'm going to hold them loosely and I'm going to share them with others. And I'm just going to see them as that. And they're just gifts and they come and they go, but my heart is not wrapped all around them. That's my heart and prayer this morning. That God would move us all in that direction of becoming people. The people that he called us to be and we get to do that together. So let's do that this morning, church. Would you join me as we pray about these things? Father, I thank you that you are a good God and that you give us good gifts. And Lord, we confess that we mess those gifts up sometimes. We, we try to use them for wrong purposes. Or we just... We overindulge, we get ourselves sick because we're like kids that just eat too much candy on Halloween, God. We just overstuff ourselves with your good gifts. So God, we repent. And God, I pray this morning that you, as you brought conviction to hearts, God, that you will, you will bring specific things to people's minds. And you'll give them the courage and you'll fill them with your Holy Spirit to begin making steps in the right direction to reorder their hearts, to love you first, to seek first your kingdom, knowing that you will give us all those good gifts on top of that. But you are first and you are our priority. So Father, we're here today to do that, to declare that you are our priority. We're here to worship you and help us in the days ahead to continue to place that priority on knowing you and loving you. Father, we ask for your mercy and grace to change us in the ways that we need to change. And we'll give you all the glory and all the credit. In Jesus' name, amen.